Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. Welcome to the Work All Happiness podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Bob King. Bob King is the founder of Human Scale, a business that he founded in 1983 with a focus on high performance tools to support a healthy, more active way of working. Human Scale is now a global ergonomics leader with businesses in 23 different countries and a reputation for designing products that will improve the comfort and health of office workers. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here. Now, one of the first things that people listening to these podcasts always want to know is what was your early life like? And at a young age and at school, did you ever think you'd set up a hugely successful business? Well, at an early age, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, how could I find candy in the cupboards and, uh, and, and have, fun, have fun outside? Um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I used, to, uh, I used to love the outdoors. I used to spend a lot of my time um, walking up creeks, looking for, looking for, for cool stuff or fishing or uh, hiking in the woods. I, 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 I grew up out, outdoors. Um, and so that's that's what I did as a kid, and um, in in school later I I I became a runner. Uh, I was a track runner throughout high school and college, and and that was actually very important to me. Um, and then and then eventually I started thinking about getting a job. So so uh, it wasn't like I dreamed about it since I was a kid, but eventually I realized I had to get a job. Um, and what about your parents? Were, were they entrepreneurs? Did they push you along this path, inspire you? Not, no, not at all, actually. Um, my mom was a nurse and my, my dad uh, worked in a factory. Um, they, were, they were wonderful people and supported me and, and believed in me. And, um, but, but they were very conservative. Uh, when I started, when I first quit my job and started my business in 1983, as you said, um, they both thought I was crazy and tried to talk me out of it. <laughs> uh, so no, there, there was, that wasn't, they, they really didn't, didn't push me at, in any way. Um, I ended up pushing myself. Uh, they were very hands-off. Uh, I admired them. I, I particularly admired my, my mom. She was a nurse, but then she was at very, it turns out was very ambitious and she worked her way up and ultimately uh, essentially ran, ran hospitals later in her career. Uh, and I think I got some of my ambition from her. Um, she was very, very smart and I always admired her, but, um, but, but my, no, I, my own, this all came from myself. My, my parents would have been happy if I just got a steady job and, and, uh, you know, got out of the house. And, and where was home? What part of, the, of America were you brought up in? Yeah, in the Northeast, in New England, mostly New England. I was born in New Jersey, um, went to college in, in Boston. And were you a diligent student, Bob? 
not as diligent as I, I wish I had been. <laughs> I was very focused on certain things and I did very well in certain areas. I was very into, uh, into track, into running. And I put a lot of my, my energy and focus on that for a while. Looking back, I wish I had been more diligent as a student. I was diligent enough, I suppose, but, 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 but I think that's one of my regrets, regrets is, is that I wasn't as diligent as I could have been. And clearly track was important to you. Why was that? I thought it was an, it's an area where you could excel, where you could, you know, you could work hard and see results. And I thought that was pretty cool. You could work hard and, and then you get, get good results. And uh, that was really very interesting to me. I, I thought that was, that was quite a cool thing. I ran, obviously, uh, you know, not sprinting. I, I, I ran more distance stuff. And so the harder you work, if you worked much harder than everyone else, come time for a, for a race, you'd end up, you'd end up winning. And, and I was like, geez, this is, this is pretty cool. All you, all you have to do is run a lot further during the weekend as ever, than everyone else. And, and, and then you're a star. I thought it was pretty, a pretty neat thing. And, and that actually taught me a very important lesson about life, you know, that, um, that it, it's not what happens on a given day. It's what happens over a very long period of time that matters. And, uh, uh, that was that was a wonderful experience for me. And and what other lessons do you still hold on to from your childhood? I mean, you talked about your mum being an inspiration and working hard. Uh, you grew up in the the northeast of uh, America, which is obviously a large commercial area. Uh, you had your track and clear competitiveness. So, of all of those things, what what do you think most shaped you? We lived in the northeast, which is populated, but there but there. Are, very, you know, rural parts of it. And I would spend a good part of my time in, in rural parts of it. We tended to live in rural, rural areas as a kid. And I would, I would spend a lot of time with my friends uh, going, finding, finding places to go fishing in, in uh, creeks or rivers nearby or lakes. Um, we would, um, you know, we would, we would go looking for Indian artifacts in, in creeks and and we spent a lot of time in the woods. And we, my grandfather and my brother, loved nature, and they they knew every every type of bird that would live in in our area, or every type of of animal. And they taught me all these things about about nature, and I I fell in love with it. And today I'm very I'm an environmentalist. Uh, I'm a conservationist. I, I believe that we need to protect our planet. I believe that. We need to we need to protect the creatures that live here. They uh, I think I think they have as much right to live here as we do, and uh, that's something that's shaped shaped my life a great deal. And it's part of it's part of who we are as a company, which is important to me. But it's interesting when you have values like that that are very strong values and principles. Those things are inspirational to the folks who work here, uh, which is really important. It's important that. That people are inspired by where they work and that's that's one of the ways that people are inspired i think and obviously that topic's become more and more relevant over the 30 years that you've set up and been running human scale yeah absolutely in the beginning we we would do things the right way from a environmental point of view and and it was a cost it didn't it didn't bring in additional revenue uh, everyone, very often people would say, oh, oh, it's great that you're using recycled material, or it's great that, that you're, you're not, you have a small carbon footprint. Uh, but no one would pay an extra, extra, you know, five or 10% for that. 
uh, that's changed today. People care deeply about it. Uh, almost, I don't know, not, not all, but a significant percentage of the customers that we, that we work with do really care about protecting the environment. It's, it's part of the mantra of the company. And they, have, they often have, have standards they have to meet. They have to meet um, certain criteria for build outs for new buildings and so on environmental criteria and, and, and so it really matters. So now, now being, being responsible environmentally and actually being a leader in terms of environmental responsibility has had a really positive impact on, on our business, which is, which is great to see. Before we did it because we thought it was the right thing to do. Now we still do it because it's the right thing to do, but it's actually, it's actually beneficial too. And, and going back to the, the time you were at university, because you went to Boston University uh, after high school, um, can, can you remember at that time environmentalism being big? Were you actively involved in any way then? No, there was very little concern about that. I, I went to school uh, back in the 70s, um, mid-70s, and um, there, was, there was very little interest in that. No one, no one really discussed it. Um, it's just become, it's become, you know, mainstream really in the last 20 years or, or, or even less really. And at university, what did you study, Bob? Economics. And how did you enjoy that? Yeah, I liked it. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I like numbers. I like math. Uh, I like science. It's a bit of science in there. And then you went to Columbia where you, um, you took your MBA. I worked for two years and got an MBA. So let, let's just spend a few minutes on, on you working for somebody else. So pre-setting up HumanScale and your MBA. Tell us who you work for. Uh, right after college, I worked for a computer company called Burroughs. That's since been acquired many times over by someone else. Uh, but I sold uh, what were called uh, mini computers back then, primarily to, to banks in, in Boston. Then I went to Columbia. And I got a, a job with another computer company uh, called uh, Digital, Digital Equipment. Again, was acquired by, by, by other companies. It was, at the time I joined, they were the second largest computer company in the world to IBM. They were acquired by a little startup later on uh, that made laptops, which is kind of funny. But anyway, uh, I, worked, I worked there for, for, I guess, two years also before I started the company. What drew you into that world? So there you are, you're very successful, you've got your degree. What, why, why computing? Why, why selling that technology? When, when you come out of school, <clears throat> you know, with an economics degree and, and um, the best job, you know, the best job you could get was, you know, in, in something like computer sales. Computers were, and are of course, but that, that was really the golden age, right? Uh, when things were becoming computerized and, and it was changing the world. So that was a really exciting place to be. Um, obviously, you know, that's when Bill Gates started his company uh, the same year I started. I started mine in 1983. He's, he's, he's done quite some bit better than I have. Than I have. Uh, but that was, that's, that was uh, you know, that was when the world was, was changing. So it was a great place to be, an exciting place to be. But, but just tell us what you remember about that time working for, you know, big corporates selling technology computers what 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 do you take from that what do you remember as being good 
what do you take away as being less good that you might choose to use uh, to improve things or do things in a different way later in your career? What I learned was that, well, I was in, I was in sales, selling, selling computers. So what I learned, which I knew all along, was that if you, if you worked really hard um, and met with a, a, lot, of, a lot of customers and, and built relationships with them, um, which took time and effort, um, but if you did, if you did the groundwork that you could get excellent results, um, and those results benefited the customer and, and benefited our company and that, that the relationship between companies is, is mutual, mutually beneficial. We would, we would do things, uh, computerized areas that weren't computerized and so on, um, and have, really incredibly positive impacts on, on their organization, on the customer organization. Um, so it, it built my belief that, that business is fundamentally good and that business can have a, a dramatically positive impact on, on, on the economy and on society. And, and that hard work pays off just like it did in track back in my high school days and college days. Um, what I what I what I saw though also was that there was a great deal of politics, and um, there were there were people who were very well liked by 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 management and by senior management who ended up getting promoted uh, when people who were performing better sometimes didn't. Um, there were there were prejudices that we saw uh, in that I saw in the in the workplace that um, that I didn't understand and that I didn't I didn't I, I didn't understand why they existed. Um, so there were there were, there was you know we learned there were great things and then and then as you said there there were, there were bad things that uh, I felt very uncomfortable with. And, and how did you get on with your line managers? What did you learn from them? Uh, no I don't that's that's see that's the thing, I I spent uh, very often you know, we had an office in downtown Manhattan in, in my my last job I had at digital, and um, I I wouldn't be there very often I was I was at the and we I had one account one one very large bank, I would be at the bank all day, um, having lunch with with customers and chatting with customers about, about a product we had or, or, or a software uh, application or something. Um, and I, I didn't actually develop really good relationships with my, with my bosses uh, because that wasn't really my job. My job was you know, down the street at the bank. And, and that's, that's what I said. I think um, the folks who did develop really good relationships with their bosses sometimes, sometimes had a bit of an upper hand uh, over me, because they had those those relationships. Sometimes people people didn't know where, where I was all day. Uh, at the end, at the end, I I ended up having very good figures. You know, I was one of the one of the top sales reps in in the country in the United States. Uh, my second year there, but the relationships with your boss, I realized, was were quite important, and uh, I kind of missed that one. So uh, I was that, I, I was a bit frustrated by that. And and has that affected the way that you? look now at management and progression do you think it's a more important attribute now than to you than it might have been back then 
No, I believe deeply that uh, people, people need to be given the tools to be successful and they need to be trained. They need to know, hey, this is the direction we're going in. This is, we're, we're marching here. Here's, here's what, we need to, what we need to do. And then you, you let them, and, and then you let them go. Um, and if you make sure they're supported, if they have issues or problems, you know, you're there, you're there for them, but their, their job is to, is to achieve those results. And I believe very strongly that, that they need to deliver the results and that that's what matters. Uh, and if people deliver results, then they need to get promoted. It's not, it's not about, it's not about politics or, or interpersonal relationships. Of course, we have to work together, but if you don't work together, you don't get results. At the end of the day, you have to do the right things to get the results. So I, and I think by doing that, it's very, it's very fair. Um, people need to be treated fairly. It's critically important that they feel they're being treated fairly. And that's, that's how you treat people fairly. At some point in an organization, people have to just deliver the results, deliver goods. At some point in an organization, at a, at a junior level, if you can't get something done, that's not, not, no problem at all. Steve Jobs gave an analogy, I remember. He said, look, if a custodian who's cleaning the office comes to me and says, oh, Steve, I, I wasn't able to clean your office yesterday, sorry, the door was locked. They say, oh, sorry, no, pro no problem. I'll make sure it's unlocked going forward. But if a senior executive comes and says, sorry, we, we couldn't deliver the, uh, you know, your, our, our targets that we agreed on for the EMEA because, uh, because we had Brexit and then we had this other problem and this other problem, then it's, it's like, no, no I, look, I, I can't get involved in all that. I don't know much about that stuff. I just know what we agreed on. So it's really important, I think, that people have that responsibility. And I think it's empowering to give people that responsibility and not, and, and not uh, look over the shoulder all the time. Let's talk about the idea for human scale. What was it that decided you to leave digital? As you said, at the time, a huge, the second largest computer business in the world, at a time when computing technology was growing at a rate of knots. You've got parents who are saying to you, well, Bob, I don't know if I'd do that if I was you. So where did you get the idea from? And where was the drive to leave that world that was safe to go and build the amazing business you've built? In business, I'm happy to embrace risk. I don't mind risk. And I think that's, that's critically important, of course, to, to anyone who starts their own thing. That's something that's just you know, I was born with, but there were things in large companies that troubled me. I was not, I was not happy with the way they were run. I was not happy with the opportunities that folks had. I always thought, as I said before, that, that just going out and, and doing your job incredibly well didn't necessarily mean that you were top on the list for, for moving up or, or getting a raise. Uh, and I thought that was unfair. I think that um, it's unfair in a lot of different ways. Um, if you're not part of the inner circle, if, if, if I can use that term, then you have less of a chance of, of excelling uh, in, a, in this, these corporations that I had seen. And, and being part of the inner circle meant 
putting your effort into being into that inner circle, but it, but it also might, might, and it did, it had to do with who you were. Um, you know, if you weren't, look, I'm, I'm a, I'm a white guy. So I, 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 have, I can't complain about anything, but there, there are situations where <clears throat> if you weren't from the, the same ethnic background or cultural background or, or other background that, that you wouldn't be part of the inner circle. Um, I'm not accusing any companies of doing that, but, but, but I saw that, I saw that that's, that's the reality. Um, so there were things that I didn't, didn't like about big business and, and I thought I could do it better. I was a kid and I thought I could, I could do stuff better. Right. Uh, so I always wanted to start my own company and do things, do things better. Uh, and, I, and I did as a kid, I, one summer, I, I, um, I, I started my own business selling, catching bait and selling bait to, to bait stores uh, on the coast, on the coast of uh, Connecticut. Uh, and I thought that was pretty exciting. So, uh, so I always wanted to do, to do, to start my own business. I thought it'd be very exciting, but I also saw a lot of, a lot of failings in large business. And I thought, I thought I could do better. And so where did the idea for human scale from? Because so all the things you could have set up doing, you know, a grown up bait business, why human scale? Where, where did you see the opportunity? And then, you know, where did it go from there? Well, I'll tell you, Mark, in hindsight, I, probably, I should have stayed in the computer field. I should have started a software company or, you know, something like that, right? There, there was enormous opportunity there, and I completely missed it. I completely missed that opportunity, um, which, would, which is another thing I sometimes, I sometimes think back on. I don't really regret because I love, I love, the, I love being in, in, in the business I'm in, and I love human scale, and uh, I wouldn't have changed it. But but I think back that um, if I had if I had gone into a state in, in technology, it might have been might have been quite different. But anyway, uh, I, it came by accident, completely by accident. I was always looking for an opportunity, and we had a uh, the the account I handled, uh, Bankers Trust Company, which was since since uh, acquired by Deutsche Bank. Uh, they had a, an application. Uh, money transfer application where they transferred funds, huge amounts of funds, and they did it on computers. Um, and these, this is back in, I guess, 1982. They, um, these, they were CRTs um, with, with a glass, the front is glass, quite shiny, quite reflective glass. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the text, <clears throat> excuse me, the text on the computers were, were not that sharp. And so they had bought these anti-glare screens made of a very fine uh, textile um, that you put over the, over the glass display and it got rid of the glare, and made, the, made the text easier to read. And uh, they glued them on. And they glued them on with all different types of glue and the glue dripped into the keyboard and a bunch of these, everyone got them because someone found them somewhere. And a bunch of the, the monitors, um, computer terminals, we called them back then, <clears throat> crashed. And this is in a, in, a, in a highly critical area. So I was, I was called in and uh, we got our maintenance people in there and we swapped them out and, and it was fine. But I realized that they had glued these, these um, anti-glare screens, which had a rigid frame. 
on the outside of the monitor. Uh, and it was, again, made of a, a very fine black textile. And I thought, geez, we could, um, we can just pop the cover off of these, off these computer monitors, put, put the screen right up against the display so it's, so it's tight and it would look a lot better and you wouldn't have to glue it on. It would, it would be a much better, much better application. So I figured out how to, how to use a flexible frame instead of a rigid frame. So you can just put it against the, the, uh, the CRT display, the, the tube, and then put the cover over and the cover held it in place. And so I, I, I played around with it and we, we, uh, we got a couple of units working and um, we, uh, we, ended up, we ended up selling them to, uh, to, to large companies. Um, and I, I quit my job uh, in, in the beginning of 1983 and uh, we sold these anti-glare screens. And it was, it was it's, a whole, it's a whole nother story, but it was, it was a pretty amazing adventure back then. So you- it, that people will listen to that and say, "Well, that's amazing." But but how how did you do it? I mean, did you have a factory that you knew of who could make these things, or did you have a contact that you could go to? And how did you set up the company? And where did you get the money from? And how did you pay the stock? And where mm-hmm. did you go and get your customers from? Well, I was you know I knew a lot of customers. Um, well, at my at my accounts, and um, so. <clears throat> I knew who the right people were at all the banks and, and so on. I, I was in sales. So to make these things, it turns out, um, I, had a, I had a friend who, who was un, un, unemployed at the time. So he and I uh, got together and uh, figured, figured it out together. And uh, what we realized, we could make them on a, a screen printing machine, the types of things you use to screen print um, T-shirts. You could buy these machines for <clears throat> a couple thousand dollars, so we we could afford that. And then he had uh, his parents lived outside of uh, New York in a suburb, so we went to his parents' house and we set this screen machine, screen printing machine, up in his basement. And if you put the frames, we had the we had the frames punched by a company that punches frames out of sheets of plastic. You put the frames underneath the, the screen and then you glue it and then you wait for it to dry and then you cut it out with a razor blade. So that was our production facility. And I did it, he, he and I did it at night. And then during the day, we'd go visit customers, make appointments with customers. And when you met with the customer, you show it to them, you say, look, try it for a week. If your people say it, it changed their life, then you should get them. If they say, yeah, it doesn't really help one way or another, then forget it. And, and it did help a lot. So we ended up getting, it was very easy to sell. It was actually a lot of fun, but then we'd say, Oh, can you tell us, you know, give us names of the people down the hall. Right. And we go down the hall and say, Oh, we were just referred here. So uh, then at night we'd come back and we'd, we'd make, we'd make them for the next to, to, to fill the orders that we, that we sold that day or the, or the week before or something. Right. Uh, and then we pack them up have them waiting for the UPS uh, person to come and so on. And then, but unfortunately after the first month, uh, the fumes from the glue seeped up through the, through the ceiling and into the house. And we got thrown out of my, my, my friend's uh, house. <laughs> His mother came down, opened the door one time and said, that smell is driving me crazy. And she threw us out. So uh, we had to rent our own space then, but, but at that, at that point we had some business coming in and, 
we rented space and we had the big machine in the middle of this room. And on the side of the room, we had, we had desks, two big desks uh, that two people could sit on each desk. And they were on, on sawhorses and the desk was just a, a door. Uh, it was just a, a door that we, we, one I think we found and the other we bought really cheaply. And I remember going out, we had to get chairs because we had to sit in, you know, sit down when you made your phone calls to make appointments. So we went to a local store. I forget the, the name is a really cheap store. It might be, I forget, it might be Bon Marche or one of those stores. Anyway, we went in there and we found these wire mesh chairs. And I still remember it was like, they were under $5 a chair, uh, but you could get a cushion for them. But the cushion was like, I forget, but maybe another $2 for the cushion. So we did, I remember, I remember to this day, we didn't buy the cushion because that was too much money. We just bought the chairs, <laughs> four of them, because we had two other salespeople at that point. And, uh, but after the first day, you know, they're wire mesh. So when you sit in them, when you stand up, you had a wire mesh imprint in your behind, right? And it was really painful. So the next day, we went back to the store, and we bought the cushions, I still remember. Uh, but so that's, that's kind of how we started, you know, on a shoestring, but it was, it was really a joy, a joyful experience. Uh, and, and the salespeople who worked for us, we, we hired, they were basically unemployed, um, couldn't find a job. So we hired them and they pay, we paid them commission. We didn't give them a salary or anything. Uh, so, you know, that, that way we were able to afford them, right? So we kind of financed our business rather than giving everybody salaries. We just, the sales folks were paid commission and, and that kind of paid their way. And, and looking back on those times, which clearly were very happy, what, what lessons did you learn about setting up a business from scratch? What I realized is that it's okay to start it that way and, and not get money, not get funding. And we didn't. We, we were self-funded. We, we never, we never um, you know, borrowed money or, or sold equity. And no one, would buy, no one would buy our equity back then if they were to see our, our operation, right? But... Um, we could have accelerated things much more quickly if we had gotten funds. So if we had taken on a, a financial partner at some point, maybe not at that point, but at some point, uh, we could have hired a, a bunch of people. We could have opened up more offices. We could have gone through distribution. Um, back then, I understood sales. Uh, so I understood, you know, you go in, you, you meet with the person who runs a, a department or a group, and, and you explain to them, what the thing does and if it helps them then they buy it but i didn't understand distribution and i i would have i would have been smarter not smarter but it would have worked out better if we had done the selling and and developed relationships with the customers that we did back then i mean we developed relationships with some of the largest companies in the world uh, which were good and, and it was good for the company but if we had gone through distribution, we could have multiplied our revenues very, very quickly, uh, much quicker. And I, I wish we had done, done it both ways. And, and the reason I'm explaining this is that it's important not to just follow what you're, what you're comfortable with. It's important to expand out and think of other, of other things that you may not be comfortable with and understand those things. And I didn't, I didn't do that early on. And, and it would have been it would have been better for the company if I had. And um, clearly you look back with great fondness on those early days. 
and working off a door and um, having some painful chairs. But but take us from there on on your remarkable journey. So, you know, you you pioneered uh, articulating keyboard systems in the early nineties. You launched the Freedom Chair to um, uh, you know huge uh, accolades uh, at the end of the, the last century, nineteen ninety nine. So. Talk us through the journey. How how do you go from from working on that that door as a desk to where you are now, Bob? Well, you had to, we had to we had to um, come up with new products. Um, I realized early on that that just anti glare screens wasn't going to be uh, you know wasn't going to cut it, and we had access to all these customers. All these customers who were sitting in front of computers. Um, and they they liked us, um, and and they you know they they felt good about working with us, and so you know I realized that what we needed to do is develop this very small, very targeted product product mix of products that can help people work more comfortably, um, make make them work more comfortably, uh, allow them to work in a, in a healthier way, so people you know didn't have didn't have issues back then. There were a lot of problems. People, people all of a sudden got computers on their desks. No one, no one said, oh, here's where the computer should go. Here's where your paper input devices should go. Here's how, you know, here's where your keyboard should go. No one, they just plopped it down on the desk and said, there you go. And as a result, people had all kinds of problems. There were huge musculoskeletal uh, issues back in the 80s and 90s chronic back problems occurred because people were, people were basically adjusting their bodies to their work. So they'd hunch over so they could see the, uh, the computer display or hunch over so they could reach the keyboard. Very often they would sit in a, in a corner and they'd put the, the monitor in the corner so that they could clear space in front of them. And people would spend years with their neck turned at 45 degree angles so they could look at the computer monitor. And invariably, in that situation, people are going to have chronic neck pain for the rest of their lives. So there was a, a huge opportunity to, to improve that situation. And that's what we looked to do. One of the first products we looked at was um, adjustable keyboard supports to allow the keyboard to adjust to a human rather than vice versa. And so we ended up buying a mechanism that held the keyboard and allowed you to adjust it. You adjusted it by turning a knob and lifting it and tightening the knob down. And um, we designed a nice top for it with a, a separate mousing platform and so on that people liked. And, but what we found is that no one adjusted the damn thing. So we'd install a couple hundred in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bank or something. And then we'd come in later and, when, and some people said it was too low. Some people said it was too high. <laughs> and, and people hit their knees on it because the thing hung down too low. Uh, and so we said, oh, no, look here, you see this knob under here, you just loosen it, you can move it where you want and tighten it down. So we'd adjust it for every person. And then they'd be happy, somewhat happy. And, uh, but we realized that no one knew how to adjust these things, even though it comes with instructions, right, and all that. And so I ended up saying, geez, we need to come up with our own mechanism, because we bought these in from a company that made mechanisms. And so I, I said, all right, I'm going to hire a designer who can engineer, who can come up with our own mechanism so it's easier to adjust the damn thing. And um, hired this fellow, and he worked for us for a, a month or so. But 
he really couldn't, he couldn't figure it out. Uh, but to hire him, I interviewed a whole bunch of people. And one of the people I hired, George Maleos, came back to me two, three months later with a little cardboard uh, mock-up of a keyboard mechanism. He didn't make it past the first interview, but he called me up three, two, three months later and said, Bob, can I come in? I want to show you what I, what I came up with. He'd been thinking about it for two, three months and made this little model of a mechanism where there's no knobs. You just lift it up and let it go. And it, the platform stays in place. It worked on a cam system so that rather than a four bar linkage, it, it, it had a four bar linkage, but I'm getting a little too technical here, but one of, the, one, of the, one of the bars was a slider that slid into a cam and locked it itself in place. So the weight of the, of the keyboard locked it in place. All you have to do is lift the keyboard a little bit and then you can put it wherever you want it. When you let go, the weight locked it in place against this cam. Um, so it was really cool. All you have to do is put it where you want it and, and it stayed there. Uh, and we, we made the bottom flush so you couldn't hit your knee on it, which was a problem with the other ones. And so we would go into, uh, we competed with Steelcase and Herman Miller and all the big furniture companies because they wanted their keyboard support on their, on their product. But we would go in and say, we have a better product and, and so on. And we'd compete with them. And we used to win, I don't know, pick a number. Maybe, maybe we'd win one project out of, out, of, um, out of three that we competed in because we had a nice platform. But the mechanism was basically the same as their mechanism. But then we came up with this new mechanism that George designed. And we ended up, we ended up winning, I don't know, 90, probably 90% or better of the projects. I mean, we just won every darn project because you just put it where you want it. And uh, I remember, I remember how impactful that was on, uh, on my, my belief in business. I was like, geez, if you make something that's way better, it seems very, very intuitive, right? But if you, if you come up with something that's way better, the rewards are, are, are very instant and, and very powerful. And uh, we became the market leader in that product category, uh, which really propelled our, our sales, as you can imagine. Um, and the, the big companies, they didn't mind because it wasn't a big, it wasn't a huge dollar amount. So, so we didn't get a lot of grief from them. And, um, and that, that took us, that took us uh, into another whole nother, a whole nother level. Um, we also came up with a monitor arm back then. So you could move your monitor where you wanted it uh, and your keyboard where you wanted it. And so you could adjust your, your work to you, to, the, to your body. But I noticed that even though they had this ability to adjust stuff, people were still hunched over their desk, like jockeys hunched over, hunched over their desk, uh, typing on their keyboard. I didn't understand why they would do that. And so pretty much anybody uh, who I met with in an office who was sitting down in a chair, I'd ask them the same question. I'd say, oh, that's a nice chair. Uh, how, how do you lean back in that chair? I must have asked, I don't know, hundreds, maybe a thousand people that question. I still occasionally ask the question today because uh, I get the same answer. I've always gotten the same answer. Ah, uh, geez, Bob, this is what they say. They say, geez, Bob, it's one of these levers uh, or knobs down here. You know, I have the instructions somewhere. I think I have the instructions in my cabinet. They all said the same thing. I, I, I literally have never asked anyone who, who wasn't in the business 
how do you lean back in your chair and have them explain correctly how, how you do it? So I, I was shocked that no one knows how to do something as simple as lean back in their chair. And uh, as a result, people are sitting perfectly still. They're, in fact, they don't sit, they're not gonna sit at 90 degrees for long because it's uncomfortable. So instead they, they lean forward on their desk and don't even touch the backrest of their chair and their back is totally unsupported, which is really uncomfortable over a long period of time, but it's really unhealthy. It's really bad for your back. In the US, about 50% of adult Americans have ongoing chronic back pain. I suspect part of the reason for that is the fact that they're hunched over and, and sitting in, the, in, in, the, in chairs they, don't, they can't lean back in. So I did the same thing. I interviewed, oh, I don't know, a dozen or 20 designers, chair designers who are well-known in the industry who had designed chairs for the, the large furniture manufacturers. And none of them really understood what I was talking about. They'd say things like, oh, you know, we'll put the instructions on the arm support. And I was like, no, people, people don't want instructions on their arm support. It, it looks bad, but they're not going to read the instructions. People move without thinking about it. Another person said, oh, we'll put the instructions on the, on the knobs and levers that, that do, the, do, do, do all the different things, the, the tension adjustment, the, the recline lock, we'll label them. I said, I said people, number one, people don't read stuff like that. But number two, all those knobs and levers are under the seat of the chair. You can't see them unless you get out of the damn chair. That's ridiculous. And so I realized after talking to, like I said, a dozen or more of these, of these designers that a chair that's easier to use was kind of a, a nice thought, but it probably, probably wasn't something that was possible. But then someone said, you know, one of the greatest chair designers ever, one of the, one of the great designers of the century lives, lives uh, up in Connecticut. You should go talk to him. His name is Niels Diffriant. I said, oh, okay. Now this is the mid nineties. So we were a pretty small company. I, so I called Niels up. He didn't know who we were. We, we weren't very big, as I said, but I told him we were interested in a chair that was easy to use, that people could you know, move from one position to another without, you know, without going to chair training, right? And uh, he said, oh, okay, you can come on up. Well, I, I can, we can chat, you can chat. So I, I drove up to his place in Connecticut, about an hour and a half north of New York where I was. And then we were chatting. We chatted for a long time for, I don't know, it seemed like probably an hour or two about the importance of simplicity, the importance of making things easy to use. And I said, you know, if something's not really, 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 really easy to use, it doesn't get used. It's not the effort to using it. It's the fact that it doesn't get used. And uh, I talked about how important simplicity was in life. And uh, I told him about my experience with the keyboard support and how, how we transformed that business. And he just nodded and nodded. And I guess after a while, I guess he figured I wasn't a complete idiot. And so he said, okay, Bob, you know what? Come with me. I want to, I want to show you something that I've been working on. So we walked into, uh, into another room in his, his studio. His studio is in his back backyard in a, in a rural part of Connecticut. And he, he had a chair that he had been working on that was, it was a prototype of a freedom headrest chair. So it had, you know, it's quite a dramatic looking chair as it, as it, as it is. 
and the prototype really looked particularly dramatic. And they said, sit down. So I sat in it and he said, try leaning back. And so, uh, you know, I know a lot about chairs at this point. So I reach under the chair feeling for the, uh, the recline lock or the tilt limiter. He said, Bob, forget that, forget that. Just lean back, just lean back. So I did, I leaned back and it held me up and I leaned back all the way and it held me up and I sat up and it held me up as if it were locked. And I said, Niels, what the heck's going on here? Why, where's, the, where's the recline lock? Where's the tension adjustment? Where's, where's the tilt limiter? He said, I'll never forget. He said, I got rid of all that stuff. I said, but don't, I think you need that stuff. Don't you need that stuff? He said, no, I got rid of all that stuff and the spring that's underneath every single chair, a big old compression spring that's under, that's under every chair. And I replaced it with the weight of the sitter. So the weight of the sitter acts as the counterbalance force for the recline. So whoever sits in the chair, the chair is perfectly, perfectly balanced for them because it uses their weight instead of all this other, other stuff. And uh, I said, geez, Niels, that's pretty clever. I remember driving back uh, to New York thinking that that's the future of, of desk chairs. That when people, when a thousand people come into an office, a thousand people are sitting in chairs that adjust, that's perfectly adjusted to them. So they can just grab the phone and lean back and chat then sit up and get back to work on the computer and move all day spontaneously without thinking about it. That's pretty cool. And of course we introduced that, that product, as you know, in 1999 and it became a, a, a very big success for us. Uh, and it, it, it solidified our brand as being about um, simplicity and, and ease of use. And that's, that's what we've always been about. And sort of from them, your business has gone from strength to strength. You operate in 28 countries. Um, what's the next big thing? That's what all our listeners will want to know. <laughs> what are you going to do next to make their working environment better? There's a number of cool things going on. Uh, we're doing some cool things with, um, with chairs, as a matter of fact. Uh, we're, doing a, we're doing a lounge chair that actually Niels uh, designed. Niels passed away uh, several years ago, but he had designed a, a lounge chair. And uh, the idea of the lounge chair is it's a workstation. So you, you don't have a desk. It's the lounge chair is your, is your desk and your chair. You can recline. It has a, a large, a large uh, display that you can use. You can put your laptop on it or, or it can just be a, um, you know, a large, whatever, 30 some inch uh, display that you work on. Um, you can also dock your phone in, in, on the side of it. And then the display, a 30 inch display, say a 35 inch becomes, becomes your phone. Right, it's uh, it's stocked into it, so it's a it's a 35 inch tablet uh, rather than a, a four inch display on your phone. Uh, so that's that's a, we're doing that's that's coming out now. That's that's probably a couple of years away, but we're working on that. We're working on changing desks. You know, I've always thought of a desk as being furniture, but now height adjustable desks are ergonomic tools, and that's what we make: ergonomic tools. We don't make furniture per se, but we make tools and height adjustable desk is, is something that, that we make. We think it's really important. We're working on innovations that are going to make it much easier to use, but also integrating technology into it. So that, for example, the, your universal dock will be built into it. So you just, you dock your, uh, your laptop and that gets, that gets everything 
you know, dock together. Uh, wireless charging, so you just put your phone down on the on the surface and it, it charges. You don't need wires and, and whatever. Um, so those those are two two big areas we're working on. And we're talking now in the the middle of lockdown with the COVID pandemic, and as a consequence, uh, tens of millions of people around the world have moved out of their offices uh, and have started working from home. And many are saying that they're not going to go back to the office. So how does that change the way you're thinking about helping people now they've moved to a home environment rather than an office environment? No, well, that's a, that's a really interesting question, of course. Um, we believe that people will, will certainly return to the office. Uh, the office provides huge benefits. It allows collaboration, right? It allows people to talk to one another and get creative and come up with ideas. It, it avoids silos, which is a huge problem in, in any organization of any size, where the finance department stay, stays together, or the marketing department and, and, and the production department, and they're all in their, we call them silos. Um, in offices today, people, people inter move around and, and there's collaborative space um, so that people are, are constantly in contact with people from other, other departments. That's really hugely important. Also, without, a, without an office like that to come to, it's very hard to instill the values that a company has uh, in, in, its, in people, in your, in your staff. It can be done, but it's harder. It's harder to build a culture, a work culture, if everyone's in a, in a, you know, in a work from home office. So people will, we believe very strongly there's real benefit. People will, will return to the office. But, but what we've proven is that people can work effectively from home. Uh, we never really, really knew that before. So you're right. More people will work from home in the future than ever before. There's no, no question about that. And that's a huge opportunity for us. The home, what we've seen is that working from home is like, is, is kind of like what, what it looked like in, in the early 80s when I started the business. People are adjusting their bodies to their work in, in really awkward, awkward, even worse ways than, than we saw in the 80s. People are working on countertops, hunching over. Um, people are, are, have workstations uh, in their living room on coffee tables that are you know, 18 inches high. We've seen, we've seen some horrific situations that are ultimately gonna lead to, uh, to injuries and to long-term you know, chronic, chronic issues. So there's a, an enormous opportunity to, for us to bring value to work from home. And that's one of our main focuses as a company now is, is to work with our existing corporate customers and allow, them, allow, allow their employees to create a, a healthy work from home environment. Um, and it's not, some companies have been doing things like giving their employees a thousand dollars to buy work from home stuff. Um, but what we're seeing is that they're not necessarily buying the right stuff. They might be sitting uh, on a, at a, at a dining room table with a, a chair that's really not, not meant to be sat in for more than half an hour. Um, and, and then, you know, they, they, they might buy, I, I don't know, something, something that's not improving the situation. Or they they might they might um, they 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 probably have a, a they have a very bad setup and whatever they buy may not improve that setup. So we have a we have a, a software program that takes them through a survey 
And at the end of the survey, it, it indicates the types of things that they, that they probably need. So we've been, we've been doing that so that people get the right stuff at home, not just, not just stuff. Uh, so that's an enormous opportunity for us, not only, not only for product sales, but, but for education uh, to, change, to change the way people think about how to set up a, a work from home setup. And if somebody listening to this is uh, struggling with their home working environment uh, and is inspired now to go and uh, look at your products, buy your products, how can they do that? Well, of course, you can go to, uh, go to the internet at humanscale.com. Or uh, yeah, if you're in the UK, we have we have uh, we have office up north and an office uh, in London, of course. Uh, I think the, obviously the showrooms are closed now, but when they open up, you could go in and, and talk to our folks. And um, tell me a little about your future plans. Where do you see human scale in, say, ten more years' time? Yeah, people always ask me, what's, uh, what's your strategic plan for the future? And I always tell them the same thing. And it doesn't sound so exciting, uh, but actually I, to me it's exciting. We, we wanna keep doing what we've been doing over the last 35, 36 years, whatever it's been. Uh, innovating products, coming up with, with great products that are superior to the products that are already on the market now uh, to provide better value to, to customers uh, in terms of ergonomics, right? So um, the, way, the way people work, whether it's in uh, healthcare, in the office or at home, there's enormous opportunity for us there to just keep making people's lives better by coming up with better products. That's, that's how we've gotten to where we are today. And that's, that's how we're gonna be a much larger company. I'd like to be a much larger company but doing, doing great work, coming up with great products that inspire customers, inspire our employees. That's, um, that's, that's what it's about. And, and if we don't have great products that are better than everybody else's, that, that, are, you know, that inspire our folks, we won't survive. Because if you're a large furniture company, <clears throat> you, have, you own distribution channels. So if your chairs aren't the greatest, you can get customers to buy them anyway, because you know you, you give them a better price if they get all the stuff from from you, not just not just the desks, right? Uh, but from human scale, they're not going to buy. No one buys um, our chair because it's cheaper, or because they can get a better price on other stuff if they get our chair. They get our chair because they think it's the best chair. That's the only that's the only reason. So we have we have to continue developing products that that are better than everybody else's or we, we won't survive. And um, it's pretty clear for me to, uh, to see from talking to you that uh, you're still driven after uh, 37 years. Uh, you're still ambitious for the business. Uh, you're clearly happy. I understand you've taken the, the Workle uh, Happy at Work test uh, I gather you got full marks. You're a remarkable individual. We normally get people on who say, you know, I feel a bit uncomfortable. I got 94%, but I gather you got full marks. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I had some help on that. I had some, I struggled with some questions. So I had a little help. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's clear for me to see that uh, not only have you set up a, a business that's really made a difference to people in terms of their health and well-being at work, you've, you've taken 
and rightly so, a great deal of pleasure in building it. Yeah. And, and just to finish, people have been so inspired to hear your story. If there's a 23-year-old out there now, 24-year-old out there now, who wants to go and set up their own business, what advice would you give them? Work hard. You know, what I did is I worked, I worked hard. We came up against obstacles and um, we, over, we overcame them. Uh, in order to be successful in business, you have to be incredibly determined. Um, there's, there's a million reasons why, not a million, but maybe, maybe half a dozen, why I should have stopped being in business, why I should have, I should have folded up. Uh, but, but it never occurred to me that, I, that the business wouldn't go on. It never occurred to me that that was a reason to stop. You, you have to be obsessively determined to, uh, to overcome things. Uh, the other thing is what I found, I, and I run into this every day, I find that uh, we run into obstacles all the time. People come to me and said, Bob, um, this is not gonna work. We wanted to come up with this way of making, I don't know, it, it actually, I, it occurs to me, we were coming up with a, a new way of making a plastic seat for a chair where, without foam that would be comfortable. But anyway, they came up to me with a problem and said, it's not gonna work because of this. And I said, I said to them, oh, I'm glad we have a problem there because if, there, if you didn't run into this problem, everybody would be doing it. So, so this tells us why no one's doing it. This is great. You gotta have a problem. It's really hard to overcome because if, if you have a problem that's not that hard to overcome, everybody's gonna overcome it. You don't have an opportunity. When you have a problem that's really hard to overcome and you overcome it, then you have something. Then you really have something. So you, you'll, in a way, you almost wanna look for problems. Um, things have to be really hard to do or it would have been done. So it's um, don't, don't let obstacles, don't think of obstacles as, as problems. They're, they're, they, it sounds like a cliche, but without an obstacle, you don't, you don't have an opportunity. Well, that's a, a fantastic insight uh, and inspiration. And uh, on behalf of all of our listeners, can I thank you very much for being so generous with your time and for sharing your story. And we all wish you continued success with your business for many decades to come. Thank you. Mark, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.